0: The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. A young woman made a New Year's resolution to start exercising and she wanted to improve her health. And she even vowed that she was gonna ask God to help her with her resolution. So for example, while she was driving to work one day, she prayed and she said, Lord, if it be your will that I start off my day today with a chocolate-covered donut." then let there be a parking spot open right in front of the Tim Hortons entrance. And sure enough, after circling Tim Hortons 26 times, there was a spot right in front of the door. Have you ever sworn that you wouldn't do something? Promised yourself you wouldn't do something? Set barriers up to prevent yourself from doing something and then went ahead and did it anyway? Have you ever battled opposing thoughts in your mind? Thoughts that seem determined to convince you to do what you know you should not do. It's called temptation. We all experience it all the time. And how we respond to temptation makes all the difference in our lives. For example, years ago, I read of a study that fascinated me. As I remember it, some small children with the permission of their parents were placed in a room with hidden cameras watching these children. Now each child was seated alone at a table with a warm, freshly baked cookie sitting on the table. Now the child was told that in a moment they were gonna be left by themselves with the cookie for a couple of minutes, and they were told that they could have the cookie if they wanted. They were not being disobedient by eating the cookie. They're welcome to eat the cookie. However, if they resisted, if they restrained themselves for a couple of moments, if they didn't eat the cookie for those few moments, they could have two cookies afterwards. Now, each child was left alone with the cookie, with the cameras rolling. Now, some kids immediately just scarfed down the cookie right away. No hesitation, chocolate all over the face, whatever. They just ate the cookie. Other children were so determined to resist this temptation. Some of them stood up and went over in the corner and faced the corner and and, and closed their ears and closed their eyes and plugged their noses. They did everything they could. Other children sat on their hands. Other kids, they just did all sorts of creative things to resist eating that cookie. Now, here's the thing. The researchers followed the lives of these children into adulthood, and they made a fascinating observation. It was discovered that those children who were able to resist the temptation, those who were able to delay the gratification in their lives, were on the whole more successful in life than those who couldn't resist. Apparently, how you handle temptation in life can make a huge difference in your life. So over the next few moments, you and I are gonna get some coaching on this very subject of how to handle temptation. And the source of our information is a man named James, who was the brother of Jesus. James was the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He was the lead pastor during some trying times. Due to an increase in persecution, his congregation had to scatter throughout the area, and they were dealing with all kinds of difficulties. And so James wrote them a letter uh, that is now included in the, the New Testament portion of the Bible. And in this letter, James, what he did was he checked off a bunch of boxes. He he addressed a whole bunch of topics that he knew his people were struggling with, were dealing with, were facing. And we're in a series here at Broadway Church where we're digging into the advice that James actually gave those people. Last week, we interacted with the advice that he gave uh, when it came to handling trials in life. Today, James transitions from trials to temptations. Now, what's interesting is this. James wrote this letter in ancient Greek. And the, in ancient Greek, the word for trials is the same word for temptations. It all depends on the context in which that word is used. And what's interesting is this. That, that trials are outward experiences that can be used to strengthen a person's faith. Temptations are inward experiences that are always seek to weaken and destroy a person's faith. Last week, we learned how to cooperate with trials in order to get the best out of them. Today, we're gonna learn how to recognize and resist temptation in order to prevent it from getting the best of us. So let's see what insight and advice Pastor James has for us today. We're picking up his letter at verse 13 of chapter one. If you have a Bible, open it up to James chapter one. It's near the end of the New Testament. If you don't own a Bible, take the copy that's in the back of the pew in front of you. It's our gift to you. That's now your Bible. Also, it's on the side screens and should be on your outline that you received today as well. All right, verse 13, chapter one. Let's read together. In these few verses, James debunks some common myths. And he answers some foundational questions regarding temptation. And the first question he answers when it comes to temptation is, what is it? What exactly are we dealing with when we're dealing with temptation? He tells us that temptation is the experience of being dragged away and enticed. So what's temptation? As your outline says, it's an enticement to sin. It's an enticement to sin. Now, I have in my hand here a magnet. Okay, now with this magnet, what's fascinating about magnets is there's a force in the physical realm that's invisible to the naked eye that's acting upon metallic objects placed near this magnet. So I have this fork and this metallic force and look at that. It just grabs it, Pull. it's pulling it. You can't see it, but I can feel it right now. It's pulling and if I let go, it just grabs it. There's this invisible force pulling that metal object towards the magnet. Think of temptation as a force in the realm of the will. Think of temptation as an invisible pulling, an invisible tugging, an invisible enticement drawing us towards what is evil. Okay, so temptation is an enticement to sin, but that brings up a very important distinction. While temptation is an enticement to sin, temptation itself is not sin. You see, there's something about the mere experience of temptation that can leave us feeling dirty, slimed, somehow tarnished. When I'm tempted, there's a mixture of thoughts and desires, schemes, and plans that flood my mind. And I can begin to believe that the mere experience of being tempted is itself sin, but it's not. Remember that Jesus himself was tempted, yet the Bible says, without sin. You can experience temptation and not be sinful. Temptation is an enticement to sin. Temptation itself is not sin. And there's a second truth about temptation that we learn from this passage, and that is it's inevitable. It's inevitable. It is guaranteed to happen. Last week we learned that trials were inevitable. James goes on to say temptation, same thing. It's guaranteed. If you've ever been in a flight, I'm sure many of us have, in a, in a, in a jet, what they do is the the, uh, the host and hostess, you know, the, the uh, flight attendants, they step up and stand at the beginning and, and they go through their spiel. A spiel you've heard hundreds of times perhaps. And they try to minimize it. They'll say, listen, in the unlikely chance of the sudden loss of cabin pressure, the panel above you will open up and an oxygen mask will fall down. Now, what they do is they minimize this. Many uh, airlines now, they make jokes about this whole thing. You know, it's funny, we'll laugh about it. Listen, we have to say this stuff because of law, but in the unlikely chance of the loss of cabin pressure, it's, we're not gonna lose cabin pressure. That's so minuscule, but I have to say this to you, so let's get on with this. I've been flying for well over 50 years. I've never had that those oxygen masks drop down in front of me. I've never been in a flight that's lost cabin pressure. It's so unlikely, it's incredibly rare. Well, notice that James doesn't say, listen, if you ever come across the unlikely chance of facing temptation, it's so rare, I have to say it, but it's very highly unlikely he doesn't say that. James doesn't say that at all. Look what he actually says. He says, when tempted, he says, assume it's going to happen. A rookie Roman Catholic priest was in training and they were being critiqued by a supervisor. And after having heard his first day of, of confessions in the confessional booth, his supervising priest gave him some feedback. And the supervisor said, listen father, you, you did well. I have to say for the first time you did well, but let me give you this one piece of advice. In the future, stop saying wow every time someone confesses something to you. <laughs> In a similar way, James is saying, don't be surprised when temptation comes, expect it. Just like trials, when it comes to temptation, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Okay, so far we've learned that temptation is not sin, like a a magnet and, and metal, we've learned that temptation is an enticement to sin. We've learned that this enticement is an inevitable part of our lives, it's not a matter of if or when, Okay, so if that's true, then where does this inevitable temptation come from? What's the ultimate source of temptation? I gotta blame somebody. So who can I point to? To whom can I point? Robbie Burns, the famous Scottish poet from the 1700s, figured he knew where to point the finger of blame when it came to temptation. In his poem entitled, In the Prospect of Death, Burns pointed the finger of blame heavenward. Speaking to God, Burns wrote this. He said, thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions, wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. Burns is saying, God, you created me, and you created me with passions inside of me. And they can often be wild and strong. And when I listen to the desires that you put in me, I can often be led astray. God, you're the reason why I get into trouble sometimes. Robbie Burns isn't the only poet to make the link between God and temptation. Lady Gaga made the identical claim in her song, Born This Way. Listen to what she said. I'm beautiful in my way, because God God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. I'm sorry, you'll have that tune in your head now for the rest of the morning ultimately to blame for temptation. Burns and Gaga point to God. God made me the way I am, therefore God is responsible for everything I think and feel and do. This blame shifting upward isn't new. In fact, the very first person to blame God was, well, the very first person. Adam himself tried to shift the blame upwards. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the one thing they had been told not to, God came looking for them. And God asked Adam a simple question. God said, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And look at Adam's response. The man said, well, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam's saying listen God yeah I ate the fruit but you got to understand how it happened you know that woman Eve my wife she basically shoved it down my throat (laughs) and by the way the woman who shoved that fruit down my throat you're the one who gave her to me so connect the dots God the woman gave it to me the woman that you gave to me so basically it's your fault that's what Adam's saying So are Adam, Robbie Burns, and Lady Gaga, right? Is God the ultimate source and root of temptation in our lives? Not according to James. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look at what James says on the subject. No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God's nature is the opposite of evil. In fact, evil is the rejection of God. So, God certainly does not entice people to reject Him. That's silliness. God enticing people to evil would be like Dracula selling nightlights or Superman trafficking in kryptonite belt buckles, it's foolishness. Well, if God isn't our source of temptation, it must be the devil then, right? I mean, after all, that is one of his titles in the Bible in Matthew 4, 3, he's called the tempter. A little boy was always sneaking through a hole in his fence uh, to the neighbor's backyard next door. And his mom had warned him, stop doing this. Stop sneaking through that hole into the neighbor's yard. But the little boy kept doing it anyway. Frustrated, the mother said, why do you keep being disobedient? And the boy said, mom, it's the devil. The devil's always tempting me and I don't know what to do. The mother says, here's what you do, son. Next time the devil tempts you, to sneak through that hole in the fence into the neighbor's backyard. Say, get behind me, Satan. So the little boy said, Okay, Mom, I'll do that. Well, the next day, the mother's at the window doing the dishes. She looks out. Oh, sure enough, her little boy is in the neighbor's backyard again. She runs outside and says, Didn't I tell you next time to say, Get behind me, Satan, whenever he tempts you? And the boy says, Mom, I did. I did say it. So Satan went behind me and he pushed me through the hole in the fence. <laughs> Certainly the devil is a source of temptation. But is the devil the source of temptation? By that I mean, if we didn't have the devil around, would we be free of all temptation? Is the devil the ultimate root of temptation? Keep reading what James has to say. You might be surprised. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Well, how are we tempted? Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. According to James, temptation is not sourced in God or ultimately even in the devil. According to James, the ultimate source of temptation is not outside of ourselves. According to James, when you get right down to it, the root of temptation, it is an inside job. Each one is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Folks, if we're gonna defeat temptation, we've gotta understand something. We've gotta own it. We have to acknowledge that we entice ourselves. I only have, ultimately, myself to blame. Okay, you say, but Darren, if temptation comes from our own evil desires, and if God made us, then how is God not ultimately responsible? Where else did we get these evil desires if not from God? It's a great question. And it's easy to make the leap back to blaming God. That's exactly where Robbie Burns and Lady Gaga got confused. Okay, so where are they wrong then? If God made us, and if temptation comes from inside of us, how is God not responsible? Well, we need to remember something. We need to go back to the beginning, to God's original design. Humanity was designed with a nature that was pure, with desires that were pure. We were designed to do what was right. We were not designed with a desire for evil. We were designed completely free of evil desires. But what we did was we used our will to reject God, to reject God's design, and we used our will to choose evil. And in doing this, it's like jumping off a roof. There are consequences. And the consequences were we damaged our natures, See, I think in these terms. Think of a wheel that has a straight rim. I've often used this illustration. It just works in my mind. We are like wheels that were designed to have a straight rim. And when you roll that wheel, as long as it has the force behind it, the energy behind it, it should go straight. But we have had a fall. We rejected God. It's like we ran up against a wall. We hit a curb. We had a fall. And we've now been warped and bent. And now, when you roll the wheel of our nature, instead of going straight as we were designed we are warped and we go off to the side the worst advice you can give to someone is do what feels natural no don't do what feels natural because our natures have been warped and bent by sin so we now have sinful natures that produce sinful desires it's not what god designed but it's what we have done to ourselves by the way that's why jesus came Jesus came to forgive us of the sin that warped our natures in the first place, and Jesus came to then give us power to live above our sinful natures. So we no longer just have to live by our own sinful desires, but we now have his presence within us to give us a greater power to live beyond those sinful desires. And this power to live and this power to be forgiven all comes through what Jesus did, his life, death, and his resurrection. It all comes by receiving the gift that he offers. Have you received that gift? If you've not yet received that gift before you leave today, you'll be given an opportunity to do that very thing. So prepare yourself. Okay, so far we've learned that temptation is not sin, it's the enticement to sin. We've learned that this enticement to sin is an inevitable part of our lives. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We've also learned that temptation is an inside job sourced in our own evil desires. And that leads us to the next question about temptation that that James answers in today's passage. So how does it exactly work? If you could put the process of temptation under a microscope, what would it look like? It says, each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now here, James combines two worlds in these two verses. He combines the world of catching a fish with the world of conceiving a child. He begins with the world of fishing. He says, each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. No, those phrases, dragged away, enticed. In the original Greek language that James used, this is literally lured and deceived, lured and deceived. It's the ancient term for baiting a hook. In other words, the first step in the temptation process is the bait is set, the bait is set. I remember many years ago being bored on a Saturday and and flicking through the TV channels and I was on ESPN or something and there was a fishing derby. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I love to be out on boats, but I'm not much of a fisherman. There's a fine line between fishing and standing on the shore doing nothing as far as I'm concerned. But I'm watching this fishing derby, and what intrigued me was it was like a hockey arena filled with thousands of people, and then they had a guy sitting on the back of a convertible riding through the center of this arena up to a stage, and he's on the back of the convertible with his hands in the air, and he had a big fish, and he was holding the fish up, and the place was going crazy. There were strobe lights and hazers and people standing up and cheering, and then he goes onto the stage, he puts this fish on the scale, and then they weigh the fish, and then the weight of the fish comes up on the screen behind, and the place erupts, he won the fishing derby. And I remember watching this as they're cheering and screaming for this guy, and I'm thinking, seriously people, are you crazy? Why are you just celebrating this guy? It's pure luck. He just happened to catch the largest fish. But as I kept watching the show, I noticed something. The same fishermen tended to win over and over again. And it began to dawn on me that there's more to fishing than mere luck. So I started to do some research, it's my nature, and I had a friend who was huge into fishing. I asked him about it, and he took me into his garage, and he had a shed filled with fishing rods and lures and everything, and all the tackle. And that's where I realized there's a whole science behind this technique of baiting and luring. It's a science of factoring in sight, smells, movement, colors, and noises. The successful fisherman knows what it takes to entice a fish. The fish sees and smells what it likes, and the fish is drawn towards it. And like a fish sees lures, our sinful nature sees what it likes, and we find ourselves swimming towards the bait. Well, why do we swim towards the bait? That's the second step in the process of temptation, according to James. We swim towards the bait because our desire is stirred. Remember how James described it. Each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. It's that phrase, by their own evil desire, that's key. The word desire literally means the longing or the hunger of the soul. See, when I'm hungry for food, I'm not dragged away and enticed by a beautiful sunset. When I'm hungry for food, I'm not dragged away and enticed by a haunting melody. When I'm hungry for food, I'm only dragged away and enticed by something that promises to meet that hunger, to fill my stomach. Think of the sinful nature as a hunger for evil, a hunger for sin. And when our sinful nature sees, smells, hears, senses the presence of evil, it's drawn to it like a bug to a light, like a fish to a lure. But This is all still just temptation. We have not yet crossed the line into sin. It's at step three where we cross the line from temptation to sin. According to James, step three is where the bait is bitten. It's here where James changes and shifts metaphors. It's here where James switches from the realm of fishing into the realm of childbirth. He says, each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived. After desire has conceived literally means to grasp together. It was the technical term 2,000 years ago for conception. As we now understand it, the grasping together at conception is the linking of the sperm and the egg. At that moment, the spark of life is ignited into a flame. In a similar way, there is a moment when the spark of temptation ignites into the flame of sin. Okay, well, when a child is conceived, the sperm grasps together with the egg. What two elements are linking when sin is born? Well, according to James, it appears that sin is born the moment that the evil desire is met with a receptive will. When that evil desire that we have is met with a receptive will, that's when sin is born. Think about this. When have you officially eaten? You've officially eaten when you've crossed the line from desiring food to eating food when your desire is met by a decision to swallow the food. It's similar when it comes to sin. The bait is set, the desire is stirred, and then the bait is bitten. Now the language James uses next is quite descriptive. It's actually quite haunting as he outlines the fourth and final stage in the journey of temptation. The final stage where the death spiral begins. Now, James began with words of life, words like conceived and birthed and full-grown, words that hold out such hope and such promise. That's always, by the way, that's always where temptation begins. Temptation always begins with promises of pleasure and success and dreams coming true in your life. Temptation always begins with the promise of life. That's how it always begins. But look where temptation always ends. When it is full grown, it gives birth to death. What an incredibly poetic turn of a phrase birth to death. Such is the certain end of every sinful journey. How does temptation work? Well, if you follow it to the end, according to James, it's quite a predictable pathway. The bait is set, our desire is stirred, the bait is bitten, and then the death spiral begins. Okay, so what can we do then? I mean, are we destined to be victims of this life-draining dynamic? Are we destined to be, to be failures the rest of our lives when it comes to sin? No. So how should a Christ follower respond? Well, we have two options. We can surrender to it or we can fight against it. Well, if temptation is a desire or a thought, how do you fight against a thought? Do not think of a pink elephant. Do not think of a pink elephant. I command you to not think of a pink elephant. I will not think of a pink elephant. I refuse to think of a pink elephant. I've been commanded to not think of pink elephants. I renounce pink elephants. What are you thinking about right now? (laughs) A pink elephant. You can't resist a thought. You have to replace a thought. Well, how do you do that? James gives us a biblical strategy in verse 21. He says, therefore, meaning since everything we've said is true, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Get rid and accept. So there's two stages here. How do you do this? First of all, you reject the tempting thought. Reject the tempting thought, as your outline says. Well, how do you do that? Well, it depends on the nature of the temptation, doesn't it? I mean, in Genesis chapter 39, when young Joseph was tempted to engage in a sexual relationship with a married woman, the Bible says he rejected by running away. Literally, when when Potiphar's wife said, come into my bedroom with me, and he said, no, I can't do this, and he literally ran away from her, and she still had his clothing in her hand. He ran away, and she had his cloak in her hand still. Running away is an option. In 1 Timothy chapter six, when speaking to those who might be tempted to fall in love with their money, Paul told them to reject it by giving it away. He said, listen, if you have so many resources and you're tempted to believe the lie that you own it all and it's going to make you so happy forever, he said, be generous, push some of those resources away from you. By giving it away, you resist the temptation to believe the lie. Listen, whether it be running away or giving away, one way to battle temptation is to take dramatic action by outright rejecting the tempting thought rejecting the tempting desire i can tell you one thing that i sometimes do in life is i will out loud now depending upon the context i don't shout it out if i'm in a room sometimes i I just whisper it under my breath sometimes if i have to i just say it in my mind but what i'll do is if i have this thought harassing me i will say i reject that thought in the name of jesus I renounce this thought in the name of Jesus. I don't want to pursue this. I reject it in Jesus' name. Well, James gives us some more practical advice on how to respond when tempting thoughts come our way. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent, and step two, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. See, not only should we reject the tempting thought, but we should also replace the tempting thought. How do you do that? Well, James tells us by focusing upon God's indwelling presence. He said, the word planted in you. And that phrase can refer to the presence of Christ in us. The word who became flesh. The word who now dwells within us by his spirit. In Colossians 1, Paul put it this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Speaking of the spirit dwelling within us now. Uh, John wrote in 1 John chapter four, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Remember we said we still have our sinful natures, but when you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit of God now lives within you and you have a greater power within you now to overcome the lure and the pull of sin. You don't defeat sin by your own willpower, no. You call upon the indwelling presence of God. Focus upon God's indwelling presence. Or you can also focus upon God's written word. Also by focusing upon his written word. The word planted in you can also refer to the written word of God that's been lodged within you, within your heart and mind. Remember, the Bible says that all scripture is God breathed. It's saturated with the presence of God, the spirit of God. And it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. So when we we memorize scripture, when we get it into our minds and our hearts, it's the supernatural presence of God within us, it does something to our minds and our wills and our thoughts. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 119. How can a young person stay on the path to purity? By living according to your word. Well, what if I don't have a Bible with me all the time? He goes on to say, I have hidden your word in my heart. I have memorized your word. Why? So that I might not sin against you. Okay, let's review. Today we've received some coaching from James regarding the world of temptation. We learned that temptation is an inevitable reality in our lives, it's not if, it's when. We learned that temptation itself is not sin but it's an enticement to sin. We discovered the reliable route that temptation tends to take. And we then went on to learn some practical ways to fight against these tempting thoughts. We've learned a lot of great truths today. I mean, but there's one more truth I want to leave with us. This is all excellent preventive advice from James, but what about when we fail to follow it? What then? What about when we do bite the bait? What then? What do you do when the condemnation and the shame that comes with the aftertaste of sin fills our mouths and makes everything in our lives taste bitter? What do you do when you feel as though God wants nothing more to do with you? When you feel like God's saying, no, don't ask me to forgive you again because you've asked me so many times to forgive you for the same stupid thing. I am sick of you coming to me for forgiveness. Get away from me. What do you do when you think that in your brain, in your mind? What do you do when you feel like God has just turned his back on you? That God, When you're convinced that God is just sick of you? Here's what the Bible says. Here's what John, perhaps Jesus' best friend when he walked the earth, wrote. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. He's speaking to Christ's followers when he writes this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. Every time you go to God and say, I've done wrong, I have failed you, you can be guaranteed he will forgive you. He will never turn his back on you, never. Every single time. You say, oh, but Darren, you're giving people a license to sin. It's a get out of jail free card every time. Just go sin so grace can abound. John anticipated that. That's what he said in chapter two of the same letter. He says, my dear children, I'm speaking to Christ followers. I write this to you so that you'll not sin. He says, I'm not saying all this so you'll go out and freely sin. No, I'm writing all this advice so you won't sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He says, I'm hoping you don't sin because it's a, it's a death spiral. But he says, I, I recognize that we all still have that sinful nature and we're not all always going to rely on the indwelling presence of God. So if we do sin, know this. When you confess, he'll faithful and just to forgive you. Know that you have one, Jesus, who understands you and he'll defend you in the courts of heaven. And that brings us to today's big idea. After all of the tips regarding the the, the, uh, trail that temptation takes, this is the main thought that I want to leave with our minds today when it comes to the subject. It's the big idea. The grace of God breaks the grip of guilt. The grace of God breaks the grip of guilt. When the inevitable temptation comes, don't let sin choke you. God's grace gives you power to not only overcome temptation, but even when we fall, God graciously gives you power to rise again. Reach out for God's grace today, even now. No matter where you find yourself in the journey, the grace of God breaks the grip of guilt.